Please turn your Bibles to Joel chapter 2. We'll be continuing this week through Joel. But unlike last week, we're not going to tackle the whole chapter. We're just going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. And as you're turning there, how many of you know the BSA motto, at least from years ago, the Boy Scouts of America motto? Be prepared. That's something that as I grew up through Scouts, I started out as early as I could with Scouts and I went till I aged out. And that was something that I took to heart in my time in Boy Scouts. It didn't matter what the trip was, backpacking, a camporee, or going on vacation with my family. I always made sure that I was prepared. I had everything I needed, plus anything I might need, plus backups for anything I might need. Well, maybe that was overkill, but nonetheless, be prepared, right? Remember when the pandemic was about to hit? Everything in stores started disappearing because people were buying up whatever they needed to make sure they could stay in lockdown for as long as possible. I don't know if you remember this, but do you, do you remember the thing that went first during the pandemic? Toilet paper. Thank you. Everybody wanted to be very prepared and they wanted toilet paper. So I don't know if you know this, but online people were auctioning off toilet paper for ridiculous amounts of money because they were being prepared and then people could pay them for their preparation. All right. So it's all about preparation. What about preparing for the birth of your firstborn child? Do you remember that time? Do you remember all the preparation and things that run through your mind? We need to baby proof that. We need to get the crib. We need to have this set up and ready. And all that preparation, and then the child actually arrives. You think, what was I preparing for? This isn't close to what I expected. But nonetheless, you try to prepare. And we prepare for all sorts of events in our lives. But here's the real question. Are we preparing our lives for the final event of history? So just as we try to prepare for pandemics, children, or even holiday cooking, we need to prepare for the day of the Lord. The final judgment is coming. It is on the way. Every day is the second closer. Every day is the day closer. So how do we prepare? Well, the proposition or the thesis for this sermon is that because the day of the Lord is coming, we must prepare by clinging to Christ. We must prepare by clinging to Christ. So that introduction, let's read Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble 
The sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, but the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Let's pray. Lord God, we do ask for your help as we come to this text, for it is a difficult one. And yet one thing in it is very clear. You are the almighty conquering king. And the day of the Lord will be a fierce day. And as the as Joel the prophet said, who can endure it? Lord, help us to learn these things this morning. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So in chapter 1, we looked at the locust plague that Joel and the Israelites were living through. And Joel called on all elements of society to admit that there had never been a locust plague like it before. They were tasked to tell the coming generations about the plague. And part of what the Israelites were tasked with telling their children is not only about how bad the plague was, but the cause of the plague as well. Israel had gone their own way and walked in rebellion to God. So in order to turn them back to himself, God had sent a locust plague on Israel. He sent the devastating natural disaster of a locust plague on his own people. So, of course, we ask the question, why? Well, he did it so that they would return to following him alone. God's primary concern was not his people's comfort, but their faith. And if they walked away from God and God left them in their rebellion, then they would be condemned to hell for their sin. But instead, God graciously and mercifully used locusts as a tool to drive the Israelites to repentance and faith. So as we go into chapter 2, Joel uses the locust plague to point to the greater plans of God. He uses their temporal judgment there and then to point to the future eschatological realization of the final judgment. So Joel is saying to us, you think that these locusts are bad? This is just a warning. It's just a prelude. Israel was dealing with real locusts, but they picture something much larger. The universal judgment that is to come. So the day of the Lord was bad, but the great final day of the Lord was going to be far worse than the day of the Lord the Israelites were experiencing. So we're going to look at two points this morning. And the first point is that because the day of the Lord is coming, we must know what we face. So verse 1 is meant to shock us awake and to call us into action. It's very similar to the command, hear this, from chapter 2, or from chapter 1. Similarly, the horn is not only to be heard, but to rouse us to action in the face of this coming danger. God is the one who is sounding the warning horn. It's like a modern tornado siren calling everyone to take action. It's kind of like God saying, did I not warn you? So anyone who ignores the incoming threat and goes about their way is reckless reckless and foolish. Anyone who does not listen to the warning and is killed or injured, they have gotten what they deserved. They were warned. Well, the trumpet blast appears in several places in the prophets, and it's often with a similar purpose. The prophet Amos in Amos 3 says, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? If you're an Israelite in a city and you hear the horn blare, you should know that your livelihood, your property, and your very lives may come to a sudden and violent end. 
But what should instill even more panic for an Israelite is that if the enemy is at your doorstep, who do you think it is that led them there? See, the trumpet is a warning call for Israel to face the judgment of God for her sins. Israel thought that the day of the Lord would be a good thing regardless of their spiritual condition. But God is saying, no, the trumpet's going to sound, and it's going to sound because of your sin. Isaiah 58 says, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. There's no avoiding what is coming to Israel. The day of the Lord is hastening ever closer and nothing can stop it. Israel was on the verge of ultimate divine punishment. The day is coming. Well, what is the day? What will the day be like? Verse 2 tells us that the day of the Lord is not a happy event for everybody. Amos 5.18 says that, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. The prophet Zephaniah adds to this when he describes it as a day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Now here, a day of darkness has a double meaning. First, it refers to the actual totally or the actual dark locusts that were covering everything. So imagine millions of locusts flying in swarms that are literally blocking out the sun and the sky like a great tornado of destruction. There's so many bugs in the air that it would have given the appearance of a dark and a gloomy day. The other aspect of the day of darkness is that it refers to the nature of the day of the Lord which is a dark day. And by this, Scripture means that it will not be a joyous or a happy day. There will be judgment, and the awesome power of God will be on full display. So despite what we often act like, God is anything but small and controllable by us. Scripture actually describes God's visible revelation of himself as as darkness and gloom. Now, in this description, we're not to connect darkness with sin or with evil, but with intimidating, all-consuming, overpowering glory. So this description of God's theophanies, that's where God reveals himself visibly to man, is consistent with other biblical examples. In 1 Kings 8, it says this, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. So Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, and even Solomon all use this phrase, darkness and gloom, to describe God's glorious presence. And they use this phrase to show us that he obscures all other light. God alone, when he appears, is the full focus of our attention. So when God appears in the fullness of his glory, there is absolutely nothing that can detract, distract, or lessen his awesomeness. We can add to this that part of the day of the Lord will include God's armies coming to do his will. The Lord of hosts, we use that phrase often, well, hosts, that's his armies. And the end of verse 2 shows us, the picture of a huge army standing on top of the mountains. And I think them standing up on the mountains is important for a couple of reasons. First, they're going to be visible from a very long way off. 
You will see them coming towards you all the way along. The dark, menacing mass marching towards your city. The second thing is, that army has the high ground. And the army that has the high ground has a huge advantage over the army on the lower lower ground. So for this army to be high up above you means that you have no advantage left. Everything is hopeless. You get all the terror and none of the hope. So as we look into verse 3, we see further descriptions of this locust army of God. They're described as being surrounded by devouring fire. Now, fire around the locust is somewhat unclear. However, it's best understood as the fact that fire often accompanies the presence of God. Psalm 50, verse 3. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. So not only is fire described as being around God, but God is also a consuming fire himself. In Zephaniah 1.18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. His jealousy and his wrath are fires burning everything before them, before him. So fire is a picture both of God's holiness and his wrath on sin. And as we've seen, Scripture describes God as a consuming fire. Fire is said to come from God's nostrils, denoting his anger or his wrath on sin. Fire consumes the offering of the Levites on the altar. Fire also consumes sinful men at times. Aaron's sons in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. That meant that they thought they could worship God however they wanted, and they went and tried it. And God, fire came out from the altar and consumed them. They were killed for their breach of faith, for their disobedience. So back to the text. So when Joel tells us that the locusts have fire devouring in front of and behind them, he's telling us something. God is directly working through these locusts to punish Israel. But then Joel brings up the imagery of paradise and the desert. Now, Old Testament prophets often use this imagery of paradise and desert together. But normally these concepts are used to explain how God will restore Israel's fortunes. They will turn the desert into a green, fertile paradise. In other words, God's going to bless and help them. Isaiah 51.3 is an example. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Now, isn't that a wonderful promise from God? However, unlike that passage in Isaiah, Joel reverses the paradigm. He says that these locusts will turn Israel's paradise into desert. Green growth and joy will be given over to death and anguish. Verse 4, we see that these locusts look like horses. Now, ancients actually thought that locusts looked like horses, and they equated the two. But we also see here a similar description to the locusts described in Revelation 9, verse 7. And those locusts are tasked in that passage with tormenting those without God's seal on them. In other words, God's non-elect. So I'll spare you from reading that description from now, both for time and since the text we have in front of us is quite frankly terrifying enough. So suffice to say that Joel chapter 2 verse 4 describes locusts, God's army, as quick 
agile, powerful, and organized like a great army of war horses. Now we move into verse 5, and we're presented with another concept to enhance this picture we're getting. Joel uses a description of sounds to enliven our reading. He effectively creates a soundscape for us as we read this passage, but it's not the kind of soundscape you want to stop and take a nap to. This is a song of war and judgment. The locusts sound like the rumbling of chariots charging into battle on rough terrain. It's like dropping steel balls down a steep cobblestone street. It's like the sound of fire crackling through a dried brush fire. The popping and the crackling of the fire being fueled as you watch it grow and spread, not knowing where it's going to go next. They sound like a great army lining up for battle, smashing their weapons and their shields together to make noise before they fight. Sounds may be many and varied, but you can make no mistake that the tumult is one unified force. Now, it's been reported that some locust swarms have been heard from over six miles away. Some sounds are just so great that they carry through the air for miles. So this army of locusts, it makes itself known for miles around. And we see the response of the Israelites to this threatening army in verse 6. The result of these terrible locusts is the loss of all confidence and strength. Helplessness, dread, they seize the Israelites. No one is able to stand before the horrors in front of them. The enemy is coming. And any hope of rescue is currently gone. Now, the word for anguish used in the text is the same word used for labor pains. So the sin of the people has grown great. And so great have their iniquities become that God must respond. So in a sense, Israel's faithlessness has given birth to God's judgment upon them. Verses 7 through 9 continue the theme of a great army on a warpath conquering everything in front of them. Nothing can stop them, nothing can deter them, nothing harms them. They don't even get in each other's way. They work together perfectly, like a Greek phalanx formation. They are an impenetrable wall of shields and spears. It's in verse 10 that we begin to see not only the immediate results of this judgment, but also its cosmic, its bigger significance. When the Lord proceeds to judge the world, his power is devastatingly effective. His mere presence is enough to shake the foundations of the earth. Psalm 18 says, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. So here we see that the locust army is so great that its effects are the same as the effects of God's theophanies. The effect is that no one can oppose or withstand the righteous judgment of God. Listen to Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of a fear. The deafening whirring of the locust is likened to God speaking. And by this plague on Israel, he definitely spoke to his people. And he spoke words of judgment and of warning. But also in God's voice, we see a connection to the final day. 
So what 1 Thessalonians 4.16, which we read earlier, says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Christ will return one day and utter his voice, and the dead will rise. But here in Joel, the voice is God commanding his army wherever he wishes, crushing all in his path. This military cannot be stopped and it cannot be avoided. God is at the front of this army. And because of that, the army is unstoppable. And powerful armies in the Old Testament are often compared to locusts. But again, Joel reverses normal imagery. He uses a locust to describe God's army. So the actual locusts were God's tool of judgment on Israel. But they also point forward to God's army at the end of time. So the fact that God's army is unstoppable, that may be terrifying. But it's also crucial for you and for your salvation. If God's army could be stopped, then what hope could you have that Christ could fulfill his promises, conquer sin, and conquer death? We would have no hope or confidence. But because God and his armies, because Christ is completely unstoppable, we do have hope. Well, all this judgment on Israel was not just a lone event of discipline. It wasn't left to itself without any historical significance. The locust plague was just a hint of a much larger event looming in the future, the final day of the Lord. And that day is described as a great and an awesome day. Great and awesome is a common phrase in the Old Testament to describe God's wondrous works on Israel's behalf. But here, God's great and awesome power is being used against Israel. So on the final judgment day, the fullness of God's power will be on full display against all unrighteousness. Well, this section comes to a close at the end of verse 11 with a question. Who can endure it? Who can withstand the full glory and power of a holy God whose wrath is revealed against all evil? That's a sobering question which we won't answer just yet. First, let's turn to the, to the second point. Um, so point two, because the day of the Lord is coming, we must prepare ourselves. So the day of the Lord is also called the great and awesome day in Joel 2.31. And again, Joel is using the common prophetic terms to appeal to the terror of the day of the Lord. Now, as we've seen, most of the prophets speak of the day of the Lord as a frightening day of judgment. And in these Old Testament texts, we see a picture of the day of the Lord, which focuses more on the conquering power of the coming Messiah. This great day of the Lord, when the Messiah, the leader of God's armies, will come and deal the final blow to all evil. And on that day, he'll judge the world. So when we look to the New Testament, we see a greater focus on the judicial and the spiritual element as we are judged according to the law. Now, the New Testament doesn't drop the conquering king element. Far from it. But it does give us a greater look into the judicial process. God judges in time now. But all of these judgments point us forward to the final judgment when Christ will open the book of life and render judgment. The 20th century Dutch theologian Herman Bovink says that the history of the world may be a judgment of the world, but the judgment of the world will take place at the end of time when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. 
So again, we see that all of these temporal judgments are just giant billboards saying, prepare for the day of the Lord, prepare for the final day. And from what we have seen thus far, we also need to understand that Christ's return is twofold. First, he will return to raise all people from the dead, both elect and non-elect. Everyone will be physically raised and receive a resurrected body. And then second, he will judge. Now, it may sound odd to us that even unbelievers will be raised, but that's what Scripture teaches us. There will be a general resurrection of all dead people for judicial process. Both the righteous and the unrighteous are raised from the dead for trial and subsequent sentence. Everyone to ever live will be sent to either heaven or hell in a real physical body. And that's something we need to remember. We're not merely promised a spiritual existence in glory. We have the promise of a resurrected and a glorified body in a new earth. Sadly, that means that unbelievers will also receive their punishment in physical bodies. That can be a difficult thing to grasp and to understand. But in in that moment when we consider that, we also have to realize that Jesus is perfectly just. So Christ's return, the day of the Lord, really has two parts to it. But the Bible also presents those two parts as one unified event. Christ isn't going to return, raise us from the dead, and say, all right, see you in a little while, and then come back 2,000 years later. When he returns, he will raise us from the dead, and then judgment will begin. The Bible treats the resurrection and the judgment as one event. So we've talked about the purpose of his return. What about the nature of Christ's return? How and in what way will Christ return? Well, first, the return of Jesus Christ will be a personal return. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, will return on the day of the Lord, just as he has promised. Second, it will be a physical return with his real body. Christ isn't going to come back with a Gnostic, a mystic, or an angelic body. He will return in his glorified human body. It will be a physical return. Third, it will also be a visible return, which we will all see. The Bible tells us not to believe rumors that Christ returned here or he returned there. When Christ returns, we will all see and we will all know. And the part of the reason that we'll know is that, as Scripture tells us, there will be cosmic displays of power. You can see that from Joel 2.10. The earth will reel and rock, the sky will fall, and the heavens will darken. He will also return suddenly, like a thief in the night. Jesus says in Mark 13, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And then the implied, therefore, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So on the day of the Lord, Christ will return triumphantly in full victory over his enemies. He will return in the fullness of his glory and his holiness as a consuming fire before which and by which the whole of the world will be judged. Nothing less than total perfection will make it through the furnace of God's judgment and into his glory. So with a perfectly holy judge like that, what are we to do to prepare for the day of the Lord? I know I am not perfect. And y'all are great, but I know for a fact that y'all are not perfect either. And if one single sin is enough to condemn you to hell for all of eternity, how are we to make it through that day? This is returning back to Joel 2.11 and the question the prophet poses, who can endure it? Let's conclude by answering that question. 
Malachi 3.2 asks the same question of the day of the Lord. Who can endure it? Malachi then adds to the statement by calling God a refiner's fire. If you don't know what a refiner's fire is, that's a very hot fire used to burn off the impurities in gold or silver or some other metal. To remove it, to destroy it, any impurities. So if that's the God that we're before in judgment, how are we to make it through that refiner's fire? Who can endure that great and awesome day? What does Joel want us to do to escape the day of wrath? Look back at the text. Let's read verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Even now, God says, return to me in repentance and in faith, and he will relent over disaster. God says, if you go to him, you will be spared and you will be forgiven. But not only will your debt be forgiven, but his steadfast love and his favor will be shown on you. Malachi chapter 4 paints this picture even more gloriously. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. All right, that's one option on the day of the Lord. Here's the second. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord has provided a way for those who fear his name to be healed and made youthful and joyful and to tread down all our enemies. Well, how will God do this? Will he forgive us by setting aside the law and forgetting our sin? As the Apostle Paul would say, by no means. We will endure the final day of judgment because Christ, the promised Messiah, has fulfilled the law in our place and perfectly paid for our sins in full. We will stand before the throne as faultless on that day. There may be tears for the evil we have done in these bodies, but we will not be judged and cast out of God's presence for them because Christ has paid the penalty in full. So understand that in Joel, God called on the people to repent and to return. Well, today, this text is a call to us to repent, to return, and to call on our neighbors to do so as well. God has given us the time to come to him. But know this, there will be no time on the last day. God has never been required to give us the time to repent and return. He has graciously given us the gift of time. So that's something that we must use well, both for ourselves and to call others to the gospel before that day. The day of the Lord, the final judgment, will be a worldwide vindication of Christ, including his gospel and his law. And he will be presented and declared to be the almighty, conquering king and judge on that day. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment and resurrection, but it's also about the renewal of all creation into a perfectly holy state. And all of those who are united to Christ will be brought into the presence of God for all eternity. We will walk with our Savior and we will praise him perfectly because there will be no sin left in us. 
And at the end of all things, in the words of Herman Bovink, God will be God and will be glorified. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us the time to repent, that you have even already called us to yourself. Lord, help us to walk faithfully in this life. You know, we need your spirit to do so. It is not up to us. We cannot earn our salvation. You must work through us. And so, Father, we ask this of you, that you would continue to work in our hearts by your spirit. Call us back to faithfulness again and again and forgive us of our sins. Lord, we thank you for Christ and that he is the great conquering king and the judge. Lord, we thank you for all of this. In his name we pray. Amen.